You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. This week, which just happens to be the second week of November in a presidential election year, we bring you Peter Castor, professor of history at Washington University in St. Louis. In the months leading up to the election, there has been a lot of debate about the role and size of federal government in the United States today. But as Castor explains, these types of questions are hardly new. In his first book project, Castor examined Louisiana in the years immediately following the Louisiana Purchase, and this topic led him to questions about how exactly the federal government operated in the earliest years of the Republic. He's now working on a book on this topic, as well as an online database project through Washington University's Digital Humanities Workshop. So what about the federal government has changed in the last two centuries? What has stayed the same, and what remains a mystery, at least for the time being? Let's find out. There are a lot of people who study public life during the 50 years after the Constitution was written. Think about all the biographies of the Founding Fathers, all the books about the first party system, all the books about the early political debates. But within that, there was practically nothing about what the federal government did and how it did it. It's remarkable to me. We know a lot about party operations. We know a lot about ideology. We know a lot about political culture. We have a lot of assumptions. We hear people always say the Founding Fathers wanted a small government or the Founding Fathers would have supported a big government. But we don't know what government they actually built. And in its own time, people didn't know how the federal government was going to work. I was struck by the fact that there's a lot of correspondence between Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And here are two of the most knowledgeable figures in American public life. They had helped to create the government that we have now, and they would one was the president, one was the secretary of state. And they wrote to each other saying, well, what will we do with Louisiana? And the response was pretty much, oh, I thought you knew what we were going to do with Louisiana. And I realized answering that led to a lot of questions about how the federal government operated on a day-to-day -day basis. In order to start figuring out how the early federal government worked, Castor asked two initial questions. First, what tasks did the early federal government take on? The largest single domestic responsibility of the federal government was to supervise the ever-growing number of federal territories, most of them located in the West. By 1830, the U.S. had acquired land that together exceeded all of the land of the states that had declared independence in 1776. And governing that day in and day out was the responsibility of the federal government. It was done by a series of civil officials, but it's also where the majority of the United States Army was located. So the Army is the biggest budget item, but it's important to know where that Army was. It's principally in the West, and its task there is to not only keep unruly white settlers in line, but also to prevent an invasion by a European power further west, and also to establish racial supremacy over Indians. So Western government is the most consistent, most expensive, and most broad-reaching responsibility of the federal government. But there are other responsibilities which would seem familiar to us now. The 
federal government delivered the mail. That was a huge endeavor. It's a huge project for the federal government to do. Uh, the federal government had a system of courts like it does now that had uh, specific responsibilities. And frankly, a big responsibility of the federal government was to raise the money to sustain itself. So some of the largest number of federal appointees during this time were revenue collectors. This is at a time when most federal revenue came from import duties that were levied on foreign goods being imported into the United States. So it meant that every port of landing in the United States had to have officials who would collect those duties. And there are hundreds of men who serve in that task. So it's this combination, oddly enough, of governing, mostly in the West, and revenue collection, mostly in the East, and also of distributing the mail in all directions. And who exactly carried out these new federal responsibilities? I know it's a lot more people than we assume. Between 1789 and 1830, the Senate looked at something like 5,000 nominations for civil office. Who were these guys? We don't know who they were. We don't know how long they served in office. Uh, very basic questions about who was in the federal government we don't know. One of my favorite sources for this is a microfilm collection called Letters of Application and Recommendation. These are letters of people looking for government jobs. And they are fascinating and hilarious, whimsical and downright sad in some cases. Uh, this is very different from people who are running for office. When someone wants to be elected from below, they want to be elected by their constituents, they have to make that pitch in a certain way. But when you're trying to get appointment from above, you've got to use a very different kind of language for that. The source that Castor just mentioned is one of many that he and his team of undergraduate students and graduate students are using to create a database which will reconstruct the membership of the federal government so that researchers can answer questions like, what was the average tenure in office? Or how many port collectors were there? It turns out there's a lot of this sort of information that historians still don't know. And the story of early government that most of us do know, or think we know, might not be as accurate as we think. I believe that because the Founding Fathers have been so revered over centuries, there are many downsides to that. They tend to be idealized, we ignore their flaws, but also we tend to assume a degree of confidence and ability on their part that robs us of recapturing just how much tension and anxiety and uncertainty was floating around at that time. The first great uncertainty is constitutional. The Constitution's brand new. My project begins when the Constitution comes into being. And everyone's arguing about what the Constitution allows the federal government to do and what kind of resources it allows the federal government to have. Then you get people who are arguing about what policies the U.S. should pursue. And all of this is at a time of incredible institutional weakness. What I keep finding is that it is a federal government that is larger, both in terms of its responsibilities and its personnel, than many Americans now assume. But at the same time, during the late uh, 18th century and early 19th century, policymakers constantly found that the federal government they had could barely meet the demands that were placed upon it. And this is coming at a time when there are enormous demands and enormous threats. Domestically, lots of Americans assume that the union might fly apart for any one of a number of reasons. They believed the federal, if the federal government was too powerful and reached too directly into people's lives, 
Americans would resist that and would say that a federal government doesn't work. But at the same time, policymakers worried that if the federal government was too weak and could not meet its responsibilities, there would be chaos and also citizens would say, we need some different government system. And let's review some of the threats the federal government's facing. Domestically, there's not only political resistance among whites, but there's also organized concerted resistance by Indians on the peripheries of the Union who are constantly testing and resisting the federal government's objective of subordinating them. In a variety of states and territories, there are large numbers of enslaved African Americans who are constantly pushing back against the slave system. And it takes a combination of state government power and federal power to preserve enslavement. The United States is surrounded by the colonial possessions of European empires. And there are repeated moments when it looks like the US is going to go to war with one of the European powers. And the assumption is that as soon as that war happens, the Europeans are going to invade, and they're also going to tear up the Union. So there is this sense of constant threat, both domestic and international, throughout this period of the early republic. And I think we lose sight of that. The uncertainty that Americans have associated with other times, uh, the times immediately after 9-11, the Great Depression and World War II, the Cold War. These are moments of intense uncertainty. And when Americans are, were arguing about what their government's role should be in that, that's something many Americans know about. But this period really had equal levels of uncertainty, threat, danger, ambiguity. All of that is in play at that time. So let's get back to the election. How do all these challenges from two centuries ago relate to the challenges the country faces today. For the final part of our talk, I asked Professor Castor to bring us up to the present. A lot of the discussion that Americans hear about the election is primarily about electoral mechanics. What is the strategy that one campaign is using to try to win in a particular state or to try to bring a group of swing voters over to them? And while I think that that's a really important important part of the election, when you listen to the candidates, the main point they are emphasizing is what should the federal government do and how is each candidate going to organize a federal structure to achieve that goal? And what each of them is saying is not simply, well, I've got the right ideas for the country, but also I have the leadership capacity to get the federal government to do what it needs to do. Should the federal government be involved in the domestic economy? Should the federal government create some new governing agency? Should the US pursue a diplomatic course overseas or a military one? All of these issues were argued for the first time during the period that I'm studying in this project. Obviously, the technologies have changed. The goals have changed. We have a much larger, more elaborate federal system than, we have, than Americans did two centuries ago. But nonetheless, a lot of the questions remain very much the same. So too does the role of the president in this. George Washington began a process of saying that the president needs to be somehow above party so that he governs a federal government that acts in the interest of all Americans. And he managed to pull that off. A lot, very few people accused him of being partisan. Thomas Jefferson famously said, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans, claiming that all Americans 
despite party affiliation, were Americans and the federal government needed to serve all of them. This begins a process that every president has replicated in one form or another, saying that that president not only represents all Americans, but is going to use the federal government to serve all Americans. And a lot of the way American politics has played out has been in arguments about exactly that. Has the federal government served all Americans? Has it favored one group over another? Has it worked effectively? Has it pursued the right goals? Again, all of these issues that people argue about now were really first argued two centuries ago. And even though the language that policymakers used then was very different, even though the scope and scale of the federal government was very different, I think Americans would be surprised at just how similar the challenges were two centuries ago. Many thanks to Peter Castor for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find links to his faculty page and to the Digital Humanities Workshop on our website, thought.artsci.wustel.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustel.edu.